Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Well, let's kick this thing off. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here in Golden, Colorado at the Casa of Matt Bauer, Director, Geology and Analytics, Rocky Mountains at Pisano Energy Advisors. Matt, how you doing? Uh, pretty good. Good. Glad to join you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's funny. Until we get this thing edited, I'm just going to be super open with everybody. We were at Matt's office and we had some, I don't know, crosshairs with some Dallas signal. 105.9. Yeah, we, we had the radio <laughs> and it was coming in through our headphones and we couldn't figure it out. So we packed up shop and Matt's wife was, you know, kind enough to let us come sit here at the kitchen table. We figured we'd be away from the radio, but it we could it still kind of hear it. Yeah. So yeah. who knows? But if there's any sort of in the background, I'm sure the editor will be able to take it out. But that's what that's from. So I don't know, maybe it's just the wavelengths here in, in Golden. Maybe it's the elevation. Who knows? But either way, I thought that was pretty funny. So yeah, thanks for the hospitality. He brewed a nice fresh cup of coffee here for us. And I'm excited about this one. You've been on a podcast before, right? Yeah. It was actually on the crude audacity. I did a podcast with them as well as a panel at one of the happy hours. Very cool. Yeah, it was um, a lot and, of fun. Yeah. And that's the crude audacity with Catherine Mills and she does a great job. And it was, you said it was the first episode with her, right? Yeah. So she released a, a group of 10 of them. And that was the first one she'd actually recorded. Yeah, cool. Well, if anyone's interested and this one catches your attention, then go back and see if Matt gets any better on the second time around here. But he's pretty comfortable and calm, so I think that he'll knock it out of the park. Are you a podcast listener? Or? Yeah, a bit. Generally, whenever we're on long road trips, but I actually listen to a lot of YouTube when I'm at work. So either uh-huh. music or my most recent one, I've been getting a big kick out of a guy. Does He's called Code Bullet. Okay. So he kind of makes fun of himself and his AI code as he's writing stuff out. So yeah, it's, it's enjoyable. That is cool. That is cool. And so you're, you're interested in code, right? That's something yeah. that that's something, and we can talk a little bit more about that, but I found that interesting because, you know, I know some geologists just do work and, and different customers of mine and, you know, solely typically focused on geology. So it's interesting to kind of, you know, see your background and kind of what you're doing with it. So we'll, which we'll dive into here shortly. Yeah. Before we get going, I just want to thank our travel sponsor, which is BCD travel. BCD provides solutions for every business travel program. Visit bcdtravel.com for more details. And if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Also, if you feel like you have a great story or idea for a show, or if you simply just have any questions, hit me up on LinkedIn. I've had a lot of good conversations with folks on LinkedIn, whether it's questions or just making you know connections with different people that I've had on the podcast. I'm really appreciative of that. So Matt, after looking at your LinkedIn profile, it was evident you've got a passion for geology, you know, starting back at the University of Missouri, Kansas. Is that right? Yeah, Kansas City. Okay. Yeah. You know, is that where you're from or did you just happen to go there for school or? Actually, I grew up an hour south of Kansas City on a cattle farm there. Okay. And, uh, I decided, and this is back before the grass-fed beef movement. Okay. So, you know, when you're selling a half of a cow at a time, you don't get a lot of clients. Sure. So it's like, uh, you know, I probably don't want to work that hard for that little money. Not saying that I wouldn't if yeah. I needed to. <laughs> of I'll course. pick up a shovel. That's fine. Right. And I had gotten some scholarships from Rolla and University of Missouri, Kansas City. Okay. And UMKC came out on top on it and went there and it was a great, very small department, but a really good one. Okay. So, yeah. And that was focused around geology then? Yep. Your education? I had a, a BS in geology from there. And then I worked for 10 years 
providing services for midstream and upstream natural gas, taking a look at asset transfers and assessing the environmental liability associated with those transfers. Gotcha. So we'd give them a P10, a P50, and a P90, they met that amount of value. And then we would either say, take it off the selling cost, transfer the environmental liability to the new owner, mm-hmm. put it into a trust, or very rarely, and we usually didn't recommend that, to retain it. Okay. Do, so, do you mind describing what P10, P50, and P90? Because so I think a lot of people, they, especially the young listeners, may not be familiar with that yeah, term. So it's probability. So a P10, depending on whether you're the Exxon camp or everybody else. Right, right. It's 10% of what you would get on a normal, on whenever you get that out of the wild, yeah. could be above that. Gotcha. And P50, you're saying, you know, it's about 50% running through the middle. And on a P90, 90% of it is going to be above that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so backing up a little bit, you got you went into geology. Was that something you were always interested in? Because I mean, as a cattle farmer, I wouldn't you know connect those two. So how did you end up ultimately going with geology? Well, where I actually grew up, it's mostly carbonate rocks, so limestones. And as a young kid, got really interested into invertebrate paleontology. Which is uh, like, what is that? You know, it's all the mud bugs, man. It's the crinoids that are hanging out in the brachiopods. Yeah, and you know, just collecting fossils as a little kid. Cool. I went into high school originally, thought I was going to go into genetics. And then I had a mentor sit me down and said, Matt, do you think you can sit inside that long? And at that point in my life, it took me about 30 seconds. And I'm like, no, no way. I need (laughs) to be outside more. Yeah, no kidding. So yeah, and I had taken an environmental science dual credit course. So you get high school credit and college credit. Yeah. But that only goes for one semester and the high school program is one year. Gotcha. So they taught an intro to geoda in the end of it. And it was super easy in my opinion. Okay. And ended up going and getting a bachelor's in that. Wow. Good for you. So you had a knack for it, obviously, and in a certain passion behind it. Yeah. And I think that the other thing is, is if you find something that you find entertaining and then you become good enough at it that people pay you to do it, then are you really working? (laughs) Right. I think that's the key in life for a lot of people is, is initially people coming out of college or even out of high school, they think success is predicated on making good money. But where it's, you know, it's the other way. If you can become passionate about something or if you are passionate about something and you can go into it, money will be a byproduct, especially if you're married to that passion yeah. and you bring value for it. People, like you said, will be willing to pay for it. So it's neat that, that you found that and you you know, went into it. Yeah. So tell us your journey at, you know, following university and stuff like that. And you've got a pretty, you know, solid track record with regards to your experience. So describe that. Yeah. So I went after undergrad and worked for 10 years in the environmental sector and got you into the asset transfers from midstream to upstream. And we also did some expert legal support stuff. And I got to a point where they were actually kind of directing me to either go towards health and safety or towards more project management. And I really enjoyed the technical work. Hmm. And I knew that if I wanted to stay in that, that I needed to get more education and I needed to choose between doing hard rock or soft rock. And that's like mining or oil and gas. Gotcha. Hmm. And I was living in Golden at the time and started retaking all my math classes, took Calc 1 through Diffy Q over again. So I was like, whoa. But it was actually a lot more fun the second time. Was it? Yeah. Was it easier or was it just more enjoyable because you knew what to expect? I'm not going to say it was easy. Okay. (laughs) Um, But it was more entertaining. And I think I got a lot more out of it because I found it. It inspired curiosity. Cool. So did that, applying for grad schools, got in here at Mines. Was very lucky in order to get funding so I could actually, you know, get paid to work on my research. Yeah. And yeah. Graduated, worked for Anschutz as a geologist. I have a 
they're very tolerant of me because I don't have a lot of time right now, but gotcha. I also work for Colorado Geological Survey. Cool. Doing some research projects there. And then a year ago, I actually transferred over to work for a company that I was doing consulting for, which is Bassano Energy. Nice. And that's where you're at now. Yeah. I'd like to talk about them, but I did have a question with regards to, you know, while you were going through school, I saw again on your LinkedIn, you had a link to, was it your thesis or a report or something that you did with production trend analysis, right? Or- yeah. So it was actually my thesis. So what yeah. I ended up doing is, and actually that leads into where I actually learned to program too. Cool. So we had a major in our research consortium up remain nameless. Okay. And they had, they were curious on why some of their acreage or the pronghorn, which is up in the Bakken, was producing different in very short distances. And they wanted to know, there's been some theories on why, but actually quantitative, why that changed. So I started going in, did all the background research, and then that's when the market fell out and they left our research consortium and took all the data with them. And I'm like, well, okay, am I going to do the same project for like two townships? Or am I going to do a basin-wide study like I wanted to? Mm. And that's where I learned to program. I actually wrote up a script that separates out production by the wellbore trajectories rather than going as a geologist and wellbore by wellbore and looking through the logs and figuring out where you're landing. It uses those an upper and lower point cloud to separate those out. Wow. Then started scraping out logs and core photos. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because that's actually what I spend most of my time doing now. Very cool. programming rather than geo. So. Okay. Well, then tell us a little bit about where you're at now. And you mentioned the name, but so who are you guys and what is it your role there that you're doing? Yep. So Asano Energy is a right investment firm. And actually it's interesting over the last few years, you've seen a lot more folks dealing with minerals as a lot of the good acreage has been leased up. If you're a smaller company, you can't necessarily get into a lot of these deals, but minerals provides an avenue that you can actually do that. Hmm. So we go in and we're looking for stuff. We're not a flip shop. We're looking for stuff that will provide a return for us and that has some upside on it. So cool. Yeah. Very good. So you mentioned coding. So describe, you know, how you got into that and, and you know, connect the dots, you know, how are you able to use that in your day to day? Cause I think you know, right now the digital age and AI and automation, that's mm-hmm. super, super sexy on like the drilling side. And I'm a yeah. drilling guy. So, yeah. so a lot of times I, I think back to that, but you know, with regards to like geology and things like that, I'm not sure if a lot of people are, are much familiar with it, or at least I'm not. So out of my own selfish curiosity, I'd like right. to hear about that. Well, as a geologist, and I think any geologist would agree, you're going to be spending 75 to 85, 90% of your time getting the data into a usable format. Mm-hmm. Now, what if you can automate those tasks that you're doing because they're repetitive, right? And then flip that around where you're spending 10 to 15% and then you're spending all that extra time interpreting the data. Mm -hmm. And that brings a ton of value in there. And it allows you to touch a lot more data than what you used to be able to. Right. But it does require either a dedicated data science that's integrated into your geology team or people that have domain expertise, but that can also program. Right. Okay. So would you say a lot of companies are spending time and energy in developing resources to do that? Or are people still kind of stuck in the way we've always done it? I think a lot of folks are still kind of stuck in the way we've always done it. Yeah. That's the thing is, is because if you have a workflow that works, it's hard to get folks to go out and try to develop new workflows because, you know, a lot of times they have a lot of value that comes out of them very easily. And then other times you're going to spend a month on something and then decide, you know, it didn't work. Right. Right. you have to have a company that's willing to do that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a slow shift because a lot of times it, it takes time and it takes effort 
and money a lot of times, you know, to develop these programs, to spend the time, whether it's third party or whether it's developing something internal. But, you know, I think especially now more than ever, the efficiencies and the amount of what you're able to do for less is starting to become such a demand. So I think we're at the tip of an iceberg. But how would you, just from your standpoint, how would you describe the evolution of the digital age in oil? I mean, is that something that through your career, you've noticed a pretty big shift? Yeah, I think it is. I think, well, and we're coming up on this next big one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we started using digital logs, you know, way back when, and then we start actually using them in mass, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Some would argue different, but rather than actually representing paper on our computer screens, we can actually actually represent the data. I'm talking about, okay, are you actually drawing a well log? which was a printed piece of paper to interpret it off of, or are you drawing a cross section, which is an interpreted piece of paper compared to, we can do, you know, geologic models in three dimensions and we can interpret in between those and predict values in between, which before, you know, that wasn't that common. Right. So we're definitely seeing a lot. The next big thing I think that is going to start coming out is the move towards digitizing all these rasters, but not in the old traditional way of going through and clicking and everything else, but, you know, auto depth registration, actually following the tracks and taking all this dark data that's out there and then reinvestigating a lot of these areas. Right. Right. So would you say that's kind of going to catapult, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do forward or, I mean, what would you say the future looks well, like? With I that? think for the exploration side, it will. And yeah. then on the other side of that too, is going back to, you know, the amount of data that you can actually touch if you can decrease the risk on an exploration product or project, because you can actually go in and you pull more data in, you have more data points. I mean, that has a lot of value on it. If you decide to or not to drill well, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, no kidding. You kind of touched on it, but where does the coding part of it? You said you taught yourself coding. And I think someone who's extremely ambitious would need to, you know, unless you're something that that was something that you were passionate about, or you felt a demand to be able to do that yourself. It's, it's not very common. I mean, most people go to school for a lot of that stuff. So where did that come into play? I mean, how did you end up doing that? Well, and the driver was with that major that dropped out. Mm -hmm. I knew that I did not have enough time nor the data to physically go through and separate out all those well logs in order to figure out what wells that were landing into the Bakken were actually into the pronghorn. Mm-hmm. So I built a proof of concept in Excel and Visual Basic. Okay. It, it was clunky. Yeah. It worked, but it was clunky. Yeah. And then right after that, I bought a MATLAB license for a student and, and I started learning Python. And then that summer, started using Python a little bit more here at Colorado Geological Survey, did an internship with them, evaluating well borehole breakout. So we we're actually taking a look. And if you think about a stress direction, like when you squeeze a water bottle, mm-hmm. you get a larger amount on 90 degree axis is from that. Right. Same thing with a well bore, except it, it's not ductile failure there. Okay. You have these conjugal fractures that come out, but you can tell the stress direction in the rocks. So we were going through and writing up this script that actually we could do in an automated basis, go through all these LES files and then map out stress over an area. Hmm. So when you have a project to use it on, and also you're taking, I took, I think it was Python for everybody. It was an online course through Coursera. Yeah. But then I had an actual application. You know, you learn by doing. Yeah, no, most definitely. 
Oh, we've got a visitor. Yeah, there's Luna. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is, and see, people like this is real. We're not in some Hollywood fancy studio. We're in the house. We got dogs. We got, you know, potential <laughs> kids coming around here, but, but that's good. You know, Luna got excited about talking about coding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, would you say that big data and, and machine learning and stuff like AI, is that going to continue to play a big role in geology? Cause I would suspect it is just like everything yeah, else. You know, here's the thing with there are different jobs that, if you do one single task in your job, you have a high likelihood of having that being automated. Mm -hmm. But in jobs like geology, where it requires the domain expertise and you got to be creative in your thinking, those jobs are a lot harder to automate because, you know, machine learning models, they're really good at doing one thing. But if you have to do a variety of things in your job, you know, they may take some of your workload off. They may take the boring stuff off per se, so you can spend time doing the sexy stuff, which is the interpretation. Right, yeah. right. So I wanted to kind of switch gears, but, and this is industry-wide, but I've been talking to more people. It's hard to attract good talent coming out of school because a lot of folks are really interested in, you know, going to work for, you know, tech startup companies out of, you know, California or Austin. And would you say in general, like there's a, there's still a drive behind folks getting into geology? Do you see that culture shifting at all? You know, I was reading an article and they were talking about UT Austin and mines I'd heard about from folks mm -hmm. that enrollment is down right now in graduate schools. Okay. The same thing also with Texas A&M. Mm -hmm. They're talking about their petroleum engineers, the enrollment's down. I think that a lot of folks, they look at our industry, it's cyclical. Yeah. And it intimidates a lot of folks. So I think that in order to attract the talent, especially the dual domain talent that we need in order to keep moving forward on this, we need to make some decisions. Mm -hmm. And those aren't easy to do. Right. So what kind of decisions would you describe? And more permanence too. You know, it's a commodity market. Mm -hmm. I know that. And in, the cycles come and go. But if we're going to compete against Silicon Valley to get top-notch talent in to keep developing this stuff, and they're paying as good or better, yeah, you know, it has to be somebody that either really loves it, like likes the rocks, yeah, or you know, we're taking younger folks until they get enough, you know, experience, and then we run the potential of actually losing them to to IT stuff. Right, right. So, what would you tell the young listeners out there that are maybe on the fence, or you know? looking to pursue a career, whether it's geology or just oil and gas in general, like, can you shine some light on, on sort of some things that they could possibly look forward to? Well, the thing is in oil and gas, and because I spent 10 years in environmental as well, and not to rip on that. And I learned a lot of stuff and I had a lot of fun too. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot about preferential flow pathways. Okay. But, I'd uh, love to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, is that do you want to be a point of income or do you want to be a cost? Because right. that trickles down to everything you do and the budgets you have in order to get data and the type of data can you get. You know, are you going to buy an entire big data set that you can go through if you know, have all this core data from a lab and you can go through and actually do some good science? Or are you going to be taking two samples because a client doesn't want to pay for the other two and to make a decision? And you should be putting in four wells, but you're putting in, you know, two. Mm -hmm. So you got to make those decisions where you want to be. Right. So. Makes sense. Yeah. No, that's a good perspective. Earlier we were talking and you mentioned a core. So you're, you're actually at a point now where you feel like you're, you're willing to give back a little bit to the industry. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So there were some inspiring individuals, Matt Hall up at Agile Scientific, um, Canadian as well. Oh, right on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and some other folks that definitely kind of nudged me and then also provided some Python libraries to actually start, you know, utilizing stuff before I completely understood what I was doing with the programming. Mm -hmm. And, 
kind of gave you those tools. You know, you're standing on the shoulders of giants with this kind of stuff. And actually, that, that brings up a good point. Here in February for RMAG, Rocky Mountain Association of Geologists, I'm actually teaching a Python course through them and mines. Yeah, so it'd be pretty good. Yeah. I got some co-teachers, Zane Job, and also Thomas Martin. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I'll make sure and put the links to that stuff in the show notes. That way, if people yeah. are interested, you know, they can click the link and maybe sign up or go about registering or whatever. But well, tell us a little bit about the course and if people are interested, what they could expect. It's introductory Python for geologists will provide scripts that actually are useful in workflows so that, you know, you can get an introduction. And then if you want to take more and take a course online and learn more basics, that way you can copy and paste those working pieces of code into your own stuff and start applying that. Wow. I also think it's important too, because it changes the way you think. Before as a geologist, I was like, okay, these are the tools, you know, these are the software packages I have. With those, how can I approach this problem? Whereas now I kind of look at it, it's like, okay, there's the data I have, there's the problem I have, what do I want to do with it? Hmm. And it may take me a little bit to write up the script, but if I write up the script, we test it, it works, and then we put it on a bigger scale, that can be an automated process that runs in the background you never have to touch again. Yeah. That's always the goal, right? Yeah. For sure. And how long is the course? It'll be a one-day course. One day. Yep. Okay. So yep. a lot of value crammed into one day. And yep. No, that's awesome. So in the morning, we'll have basics going through, and I'll show some different things and a couple workflows. And then in the afternoon, we'll break out into three different mini sessions and I'll talk a little bit about web scraping, Selenium, and requests. And then I think Thomas is working on strip law, but I'm not sure what Zane's going to be teaching. Okay. So, yeah. No, that's... Uh, but that information will be out there eventually. That's super cool. So what made you decide to want to teach? You know, it was kind of that giving back thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I definitely would not consider myself an eloquent coder, but I've gotten to the point where, you know, I was introduced to this by a lot of people that were really generous with their knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think it's time to share that. I also think that for geologists, especially, it has a huge potential for changing on how we actually do work. You know, when I go back to that 75% of your time usually is spent getting the data into something that's actually usable. Right. What if we can speed that up? Yeah. Well, how much more can we do? How much more data can we actually touch? And what can we find that necessarily nobody went and looked for it and found it because it was too hard to do? Right. Huh. So, yeah. What would you say the biggest limiter is right now with regards to geology and, and data? I mean, is it is it a function of the quality or just the volume that you're not able to get? Or what would you say is the challenge for you right now? For me, or is it just in general in a field? For both. The changes in between state laws is a little bit of a problem. There are very pro-oil and gas states. Oklahoma is a prime example of yeah. what I'm getting ready to talk about. Okay. That don't do a very good job at preserving their data. And anytime that you have a company that either is bought or sold or goes under, if it's not preserved, and it can even be proprietary and held back for a certain amount of time period, but if it's not preserved by a state entity, a lot of time that data is actually lost. So, mm -hmm. and that changes from state to state. North Dakota, on the other hand, does an excellent job at preserving the cores that they pull out, all of the data tests, and they'll hold some of that stuff as proprietary for a little while to give a company enough time to get the money back out of the capital that they're investing. Right. But on the other side of it, in the long term, we all get more energy out of it. Or mm. We all learn more from it. Of course. So, and once your least acreage is locked up and held by production, what does it hurt to talk more about it? Yeah. Would you so, say as an industry, we in general don't do a well enough job for holding it and sharing data? Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Why is that? 
Well, I think that, you know, you look back to how this started. We had a, you know, an independent geologist came up with a prospect idea and then, you know, you had to sign a CA in order to even hear it and then you buy into it or not. But, you know, until you sunk that well, was it really, did you have all that capital tied up? So mm. it was a big secrets game. You know, think about the term moonlighting, you <laughs> yeah. know, they had some, you know, guy out sitting in a tree by moonlight counting the sticks that came up so they could figure out how deep you were going, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's always been a little bit of that. But I think that there's a, a balance that we can strike and still protect that amount of capital investment in order to make money. But on the other side of it, preserve that data so it, it is utilized and usable for everybody mm -hmm. down the road. Right. So would you say, cause you were mentioning how different it is from state to state. Do you think eventually things will get standardized sort of like nationally or is it just like, do you think it ever come to that? You no, know, I don't know if it will in the United States and, mm. and that's something that I wish it would, but I don't know if it will. Right. You know, if you go to other countries, especially like Australia in the UK, they have huge data sets that are available of all this core data, basically anything that was ever done. Yeah. I think Canada to, is very similar to that yeah, as well. It provides a great opportunity for down the road. And if you think about it, heck, everything we're developing is an unconventional asset now. Yeah. We were in there in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, punching holes and going through and doing that. Yeah. You know, we're going back up for this tight bypass pay. And if we knew it was there then, you can see it in the old mud logs and, you know, let's go check it out. Yeah. So there's a lot more maturity anomalies out in the Rockies yeah. than what's being developed right now. So now if they're big enough and if there's pipeline capacity to develop them, that's all another story. Right. Yeah. No, no kidding. With regards to the future of geology, do you think there's a lot of untapped potential within geology or are we now just trying to maximize what we already know that's, you know, in the subsurface? You know, I think we're learning stuff all the time. You know, it's one of the big things that I thought, and I used a little bit in my thesis is seismic tomography fascinating field. I don't completely understand all of it, but I did utilize it. What is that? So it's, they look at earthquakes and they look at the arrival times in between different stations and they look at how they differed. And what they do is they actually build a model and they test it with those earthquakes and then they build a different one. And then they say, okay, which one was better? And what they can do is they can actually measure the travel speeds of pressure waves and, and S waves from earthquakes mm. for that section of rock. And what it allows you to do is to get an image of what's going on in the Earth's crust way deeper than like even seismic would do. So you can see, you know, what is your basement structure? What are the plates below looking like? Is there a, you know, a subducted oceanic plate that's all squiggled up underneath there? Mm -hmm. And you can see that stuff in this data. It's coarse. Wow. So it's, it's not fine resolution, sure, but it's really pretty neat. So for people out there trying to connect the dots, how would that be important to us? Okay. So if you look and you're looking for where there has been either the creation or the destruction of accommodation. So like, where did you make space or where did you destroy space? Mm, okay. Generally one of those things, and this is my opinion, this isn't a guarantee, but <laughs> okay. those things occur along basement structures. So if you can understand what's actually happening in the, the volcanic and metamorphic rocks down below the sedimentary rocks, you can help understand like what happened above them. Sure. And that comes into oil and gas that comes into, well, and that's the thing with minerals too. If we take a look at hard rock and metals, you know, we're looking at changes in fluids moving through other rocks, gathering up, you know, elements and then redeposit them at certain pressures and temperatures in other rocks. Mm -hmm. 
So having that structural geology element helps on both fields. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So I have a question more on the personal side of things, but what excites you mostly with your day-to-day and what you're doing within your career? What really just drives you right now? Oh man, I love like solving hard problems. I really do. It's kind of, it's a guilty pleasure because sometimes they don't always work as well as you like. And then other times they'll just blow your mind away. Yeah. You know, I think it's just like a dopamine release whenever you're playing like video games or something like that. Yeah. Is, you know, whenever you have a hard problem that you've been working on for a while and then you have that aha and you know, you get the, the star or the starburst coming off your head. Yeah. It is wonderful. Yeah. And I definitely in areas that I find interesting i chase it yeah so and that's kind of what i'm doing now you know cool well tell us you know if you can tell us about a win that you've had you know recently that comes to mind that that you've had that aha moment or something that's really sort of just taken you by storm and you're like this was well worth every minute of chasing i will okay so i wrote up a program that went out and scraped dst logs from a state not going to talk about that Okay. So a drill stem test for anybody that doesn't understand, it's the old way of getting a sample of both the fluids that are contained in the rock around it, as well as the pressures Mm -hmm. and looking at how fast those come in. But took that, scraped out all the DST data for the whole state, went in and wrote a regular expression to go in and clean that data up because it was nasty. There's like typos. Everybody's using different synonyms for like the different tests yeah. In there and the different pressure values wrote that up. So anytime that I saw a gas show, anytime I saw an oil show, anytime that I had abnormal pressure, so pressure greater or lower than what water would be, and then mapped all that out and it started showing maturity anomalies. Wow. And to do that by hand would be time prohibitive. You could do one or two or map out an area and, you know, that'd take you quite a while to do. Huh. So, it was a lot of fun. No kidding. Yeah. Has anyone else done that you, that you know of? Yeah, there's people that are doing it. Yeah? Yeah, there's people doing it. Okay, so you were able to use that how? It's a maturity anomaly in an area that hasn't really seen a lot of development yet. Gotcha. So it shows potential for unconventionals. Ah, there yeah. you go. That's yeah. huge, man. Yeah. Yeah, good yeah. for you. Yeah. So you talked about what you're excited about. So I have a question. I mean, you're obviously passionate about what you do, but... Do you have any daily habits or routines that sort of help keep you focused and motivated to keep doing what you're doing? Are you a routine guy or are you just kind of like fly by the seat of your pants? No, definitely a routine guy. I was talking with a buddy of mine while he was going through grad school and I was wrapping up and I said, you know, seven to seven, because not everything you spend time on is going to yield fruit. Mm. But if you're not, you know, you can be the smartest cat out there, but if you're not leaning into the grinder, you're not going to make a knife out of it. Yeah. So you got to spend the time. So my wife travels also for work. So when I have my daughter, I'm in the office, you know, eight after I drop her off for daycare and stuff. But otherwise it's, you know, I'm in there by seven, I work till five. And then you, a lot of times I'll come in and open up the laptop at night, either working on personal or work stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Good. No, that's good to hear. So do you have something about yourself that not many people know about? Do you got any sort of good hidden hobbies or anything that, you know, we talked a little bit about this before we got recording, but what do you do to unplug and, and take your mind off the rocks, if you will? I am a hot tub addict. Okay. Yeah, Tell so us more. I'll, a lot of times I'll get up, I get up at six and I'll go out there and I got a waterproof case on my iPad and I'll read papers. Wow. And then, you know. It, In the hot tub? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all the time. Very and cool. And it's nice because you sit there and relax and you try to remember like what is actually important and what doesn't and spend time on the things that are going to, you can change. 
Yeah. In other words, it's it doesn't matter, you know. Okay. So yeah. is it this is like a daily hot tub yeah, s- session for you? Yeah. Is during it, the week, during the work week, it is. Yeah. So is it more from like a mindfulness perspective? Is it more like because there's benefits going into a hot tub, or is it just a way for you to disconnect and be present with yeah, what you're doing? Uh, well, I played rugby for a long time, so I got some back issues. Ah. But on the other side of it, I think it helps alleviate a lot of stress that may get in your in your way of being creative in solving a problem. Ah. So if you can move that out of the way, then you have an easier path to finding those things. At least for that's sure. what I think. Yeah. So yeah. do a lot of your ideas stem from, you know, because a lot of people, whether they do it on walks or they have it in the shower, is that kind of your, you know, your, your space to like where creative juices start flowing or? Uh, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes yeah. they happen in the middle of the night and wake up at 3 a.m. And it's like, I got to write all this down. This is good. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, other times it's just, you know, you're out walking and you see something that it spawns a thought that you wouldn't have ever thought you found an answer from that. Yeah. So does that make sense? Yeah. So no, totally. Pathway. Cool. So you have a hot tub here at the house then, obviously. Yeah, it's just right there. Right out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Have you always been into hot tubs or is it just since? I, I grew up with them. Me and my wife would shoot because I have some rentals here in Goldman as well. And we yeah. bought one when we lived there. And then we moved during grad school over to her condo that she had before we got married. Yeah. Bought one there. And mm-hmm. It's just, once it becomes part of a habit, it's hard to get rid of. Hey, I totally understand. So I bought an infrared sauna. And yeah. So I went to a health conference in Austin last year called Paleo FX and yeah. they had a sauna space was there. And so I jumped in it and I needed something that I could easily set up and take down if I had to. And so we had an extra spare bedroom at the house. And so I set it up and I call it my Zen den. And oh, yeah. for everyone out there, I don't care what you think about me, but it's great. And it's similar because after oh, yeah. I put my kids to bed, I'll usually go in there and flip it on, just get a good little sweat going. And and I put my phone on airplane mode Mm -hmm. and it's that 10, 15 minutes a day just to kind of like decompress and and just reflect. And a lot of times, you know, ideas come or, you know, things that I thought were so important all of a sudden just kind of dissolve. And so I can identify with you just having that time, but yeah, it's neat to do that. And, you know, with hot tubs, it's fun because you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in British Columbia and we had a hot tub ever since I can remember. And one of the things that, you know, and nowadays people, you know, they preach about, you know, going from, you know, hot to cold or cold to hot. But I remember as a kid going to the hot tub and then running, jumping in the snow. snow. Yeah. And then hopping back in. So, you know, those are the sort of the things I don't get to do in in Houston, Texas. That's a nice thing up here in Colorado because it does get cold enough in the evening so you can use them year round. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome, man. Well, before we close up, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience with regards to what you're doing or anything you'd like to share with everybody? You know, just that course. So February 13th, if you're a geologist in the Denver area and have been curious about Python, but either didn't know where to get started or, you know, that kind of stuff, we're actually teaching a course with RMAG, Rocky Mountain Association of Geologists and Colorado School of Mines. It'll be myself, Zane Job, and Thomas Martin. And it'll be good. It really will provide some code. I don't want to give all the cats out of the bag. Of course. I'm going to give away a scraper to all the people that come in. Yeah. The log set for a a major state. So No, that's super valuable. And nowadays, you know, it's interesting because people talk about, you know, you can go on Google and you can basically access most information. So by you having a course and being able to add value and some takeaway from it, that's mm-hmm. extremely valuable for people. And, yeah. and so what I would love to do is, I mean, obviously we've got the podcast, but if you send me the information, you know, I'll throw a post on LinkedIn, you yeah. know, quite a few people see it. So 
would love to help you any way I can, you know, yeah. plug that and, and make sure that you get a good attendance. And because yeah. I think it's it's super interesting. And by you just giving back selflessly and really wanting to just kind of make the industry better, I think is, is awesome. So any way I can help you do that would be yeah. certainly up I my alley. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. most definitely. Yeah. Good deal. Well, before we log off here, I'd like to take a few moments to tell everyone about our upcoming events. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for February. We do not have any OGGN happy hours in February, but we do have an exciting event coming up in Pittsburgh. This will be our first happy hour there in March, and it will be taking place on March 25th. The location is to be determined, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter to keep up with uh, those announcements and to purchase tickets. The Houston API Luncheon will be on February 11th. This will be a networking event with top oil and gas business leaders. And they promise that you'll be learning something really cool. So check it out and sign up for that event. The Wildcatters Ball will be on February 7th in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. Proceeds go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. The API Energy Houston Three-Gun Chapter will be on March 20th in Houston. This event fills up really quickly, so make sure to get your team entered. The best way to do so is to fax or email the form with at least a captain's name as soon as possible. If you need to wait for a check, just notate that on the bottom of the form and send it on. We will be sending Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister to Scotland, to Aberdeen, Scotland, on March 5th for DokuruCon, which is the first event of its kind. It is a conference for creating high impact sales in energy. And Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast. If you're interested in attending this event, visit dokuruCon.dokuru.com. And that is D-O-Q-A-R-U-C-O-N. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to check again next month for more updates on OGGN events. Great. Thank you. Anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey? Come join the Hack and Wet crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Your skill level doesn't matter. We've got everyone like Charlie Simmer who used to play in the NHL all the way to people like me who grew up snowboarding, never played a game of hockey till about eight months ago. And so... It's really for everyone. We just go out there, have a good time, drink some beers and network. So we'd love for you to come. And also, if you're in the Katy area and you're looking to get in shape, visit KTX Fit in Katy and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Thanks again listening to Oil & Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more info, visit oilandgasonshore.com. Matt, thanks again for joining me today. What's Absolutely. the best way for people to reach out to you, you know, either ask some questions or to get to know more about what you guys are doing or, you know, about the course? I'd say LinkedIn for myself, then I'll be circulating on LinkedIn links to the course through RMAG. I think the wall also be advertising it. Perfect. So, well, we'll make yep. sure we put the link in the show notes as well as LinkedIn. I'll make sure and share anything you do. And so make sure everyone gets to be exposed to it. Yeah, appreciate it. Awesome. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks for listening. And always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. <laughs> Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil and Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. Network.com.